Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Welcome to the Kyle Coster Show. We are in the midst of October and folks, let me tell you, no better time than now to be a sports fan. You hear it a lot and everybody dislikes the guy who tells you there's a lot going on. I think we all know who that is. You open up Twitter and they'll give you the full sporting schedule, tell you to be locked into your couch for 13 hours. Now I see that a lot. And a lot of those people are husbands and fathers and they have full-time jobs, and I know they have a ton of commitments. So I'm not making any accusations, but I really think the people who claim they're watching 13 straight hours of sports without leaving their couch, developing bed sores, I think they might be exaggerating. I think everybody's so afraid to tell you they're not watching everything, that they go so far in the other direction that it's not believable. But the rare time it's true, I'm telling you right now, there's Major League Baseball playoffs are on. The NFL is going strong. We have storylines aplenty. But the biggest story comes from college football, and I am not talking about Alabama losing to Texas A&M a week after we thought it was coming against Ole Miss. What a game that was. Something about that 8 p.m. start. I'm going to have to dive into the numbers, but if you're playing in prime time at home against Alabama, that seems like you have a better chance. I don't know. Now with Nick Saban, any little edge you think you can invent and make yourself believe is good. No, the story everybody should be talking about is in East Lansing, where the Michigan State Spartans are 6-0 and in Mel Tucker's second year, his first full year. I'd be lying if I said I saw it coming. I honestly thought Michigan State football was going to be a non-factor even within its division for eight to 10 years. Now I thought maybe once or twice they would pop up and pull some upsets, maybe get to 10 wins somewhere down the line. But I did not see a team that looks nothing like the one Mark D'Antonio left. That looks nothing like the one that struggled at times to score last year. Nobody has hit the transfer portal hard than Mel Tucker. And when you do that, success and change can be expediated. That will be the way of college football going forward. He was smart enough to identify it early and be a first adopter. The other programs will catch up. So enjoy it, Spartan fans. But we are sitting here at a time where 10 wins might be a disappointment. And it's shocking to say that Peyton Thorne, Kenneth Walker, the third, Jaden Reed, Speedy Naylor went into Rutgers. They got some bad breaks. They suffered from a rare off game coaching from Tucker in the game management department. 
There were some iffy calls that led to Scarlet Knights points. But at the end of the day, they had a 31-13 to victory. An unblemished record. They're bowl eligible. They allowed one touchdown. They became the fifth team in FBS history to have a 300-yard passer, a 200-yard receiver, and a 200-yard rusher. They scored on explosive play after explosive play, including the third flea flicker for a touchdown this season and the longest play from scrimmage in MSU history, Walker's 94-yard touchdown scamper. Walker is a legitimate Heisman Trophy contender halfway through the season. What he's doing passes Le'Veon Bell. It passes Javon Ringer, the last running backs, to get this type of national acclaim. All his goals are in front of him. All Michigan State's goals are in front of them. And I can't believe that I'm saying this, but with each passing week, I'm becoming more and more convinced that this might be a special year. Does a special year mean making the playoff? Probably not. They have a buzzsaw of a schedule coming up. They go to Indiana this weekend. Penix is out indefinitely. That Hoosier team looks like a shell of the one that flirted with greatness last year. But winning that would put them 7-0 and bring in likely undefeated Michigan as well, which will be one of the most anticipated matchups in the rivalry's rich history. Win that one, two winnable games against Purdue and Maryland Loom before potentially being 10-0, going to Columbus to play the Buckeyes. I wouldn't have believed that they had a chance down there. Maybe I still don't. But when you have offensive weaponry like this, when you have a bend but don't break defense that has proven time and time again that it's perfectly capable of getting the game-changing turnover, when you have diligence with the ball like Peyton Thorne, who's been a tremendous game manager, it's almost like this isn't a Michigan State team. I'm challenging myself to see them in another team's jerseys and make my assessments based off what I see and not what I want to see. And that exercise, oddly, has made me more convinced that this team is capable of competing with Michigan, potentially competing at Ohio State, and capable of competing with Penn State. Winning two of those three games, along with some luck, would put them back in Indianapolis, which would be stunning. The consolation prize of a Rose Bowl berth out of nowhere is very real. Winning two of those three gets this program to a place I didn't think it would ever get again in my lifetime. I'm trying not to get too hyped up, trying not to go overboard. I think there's a very real chance this regular season finishes nine and three, that what we're seeing right now is pyrite, fool's gold, that there'll be a regression to the mean. But it doesn't feel crazy. And it won't feel crazy to me if this team accomplishes things that even the biggest believers 
didn't believe in their wildest dreams and does it ahead of schedule. And honestly, I'm just thankful for it. The specialness of college football, the magnitude of the games, the heart in your throat feeling when you think your team, which has big goals, may lose, drives. It's irreplaceable. I don't know. I don't know where this thing is going. I am enjoying the ride. I have my seatbelt on. I'm prepared for anything to come around that next corner. My interview today is with David Cavucci, Senior Editor of Politics and Tech for The Daily Dot. We had a good talk about conspiracy theories, the proliferation into mainstream society, the real-world effects those are having, and the effects that are still to come. It was challenging. It was super interesting. I hope you stick around. Here comes David Cavucci after this. All right, and as we bring in David Cavucci, Senior Politics and Technology Editor at The Daily Dot. So I think that the big lead in The Daily Dot, maybe we're kind of in the same spot where we tell people what publication we work for or what we do for a living, and they say, okay, well, what's that? So I kind of wanted to start is, what is The Daily Dot? Yeah, you know, it's definitely not as well known as The Washington Post, but it's a great outlet. It started, we just had our 10-year anniversary, actually, and I've been there for... um, five of them. It started as a really cool idea that the uh, internet needed a a hometown newspaper. It wanted to cover the internet like a local newspaper would cover a local town. So, you know, in this case, uh, City Hall might be Reddit. So you'd have a reporter lurking there, talking to people, you know, outside, you know, if the uh, mayor of Reddit, uh, Steve Huffman, I guess CEO in this case, was doing something, you know, it'd be newsworthy. If people on the far end of town, you know, in a, in a, neighborhood were uh, selling drugs, you know, we'd want to cover that. So we were some of the first people to cover the dark web. I, you know, I'm not sure if that's a perfect analogy, but I like it. Um, unfortunately, you know, uh, over the past 10 years, the internet's become uh, bigger and more important and, you know, everyone has been sucked into it. So uh, outlets like the Washington Post, the New York Times are, are covering Reddit, you know, announcements from Reddit CEO, Reddit CEO are the, um, you know, the front page of the New York Times. So we went from having uh, absolutely no competition in that sphere to, uh, while well, I've been running our tech team, competing with every um, major massive publication on the face of the earth. So it's been uh, a little bit maddening, but it's a fun challenge. Do you think that there's a certain level of institutional knowledge that you have that that gives you some gravitas behind your reporting? Whereas like, even if a larger, an outlet has a more recognized name, you kind of have like the archives and the bona fides. Do you, do you run into that? Is that a perception that you think um, is true? Absolutely. And, you know, our goal is a little different. You know, we're pretty well sourced within communities and we pride ourselves on that. So while the New York Times may get a rundown of the TikTok of what happened when Facebook's um, you know, server was unplugged, they may be able to talk to, you know, a senior VP on background because they have that sort of weight, you know, we're able to talk to people that are sort of lower down, more intimately involved and been reading us for a while. So we get sort of stuff on that. Um, and the other thing is, you know, we hire reporters who are very versed in the internet. So they're not swooping in. To, there's that New York Times metaphor of them swooping into a small town and trying to interview people. You know, we're talking to these people every day, regardless of, um, you know, whether we're working or not. And we get tons of great tips because of it. And, you know, people are really willing to talk to us because we've, we've shown that we cover it uh, in a smart, intelligent, respectful way, you know. I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, the uh, Reddit COVID drama over the past month, but basically the entire site revolted over their lack of uh, 
action on um, misinformation about COVID, specifically about uh, ivermectin, uh, horse paste, and you know that kind of stuff. That was eventually cited in a in a letter from I believe Amy Klobuchar, the Reddit CEO. So you know we're we're sort of on the ground on the internet, even though there's not an actual ground doing reporting like that, as opposed to sort of the the bigger stuff that you know the Times or the Post might cover. So I'm probably going to get pretty heady for the next few questions. So come along on this journey with me. I'm hoping. What percentage of like the American population do you think really grasps what's happening on the internet? How important it is to shaping what happens in power in Washington right now? And what I see is kind of like the exponential growth of it becoming like merged into one. Do you think that we as American society are even close to grasping how close we are to that and how important these conversations that are happening online are to our everyday lives because like you just mentioned with the reddit thing yeah you have people out there actually going out and getting horse paste things did shift in 2016 uh because people did sort of realize how uh essential the internet was to um donald trump's rise and you know people are slightly are much more cognizant of that you know he was sort of our first online president in in more ways than one because of that, uh, everything that happens online has sort of bled into real life. How cognizant people are, you know, you'd be surprised when you actually look at statistics of how many people in the U.S. just have broadband. You know, there's estimates that between 40 million to 100 million people don't have access to broadband, the sort of internet connection that, that we take for granted and use it every single minute of every single day. Um, that's a really large swath of the population. Um, now, you know, can they still access sites with a, with a dial-up connection, of course, but how pervasive the, the internet is, is a little different than how pervasive like being online is. Counterintuitive because the most connected people are probably the ones who understand best and are able to, to see through the bullshit where people who aren't extremely online just sort of see a Facebook post from a friend and consider it, you know, um, in the same regards as a Facebook post from the CDC, it has a great flattening effect. So if you're not well-versed in, in how to understand it or you're not extremely online, it can sway you, you know, as to how many people are aware of what the internet is doing to us. I'd say, you know, it's probably that sort of age 20 rule where 20 people are, are understand it get it you know and then 80 percent of the population is just sort of blindly going along and either doesn't get it or don't doesn't care well i i ask because the the rise of q and ah, the rise my, my, my buddy <laughs> yeah. they can't see i'm crossing my fingers but like this oh yeah is uh is it a real person um Probably, you know, we spent years trying to actually get to the bottom of it. And it's one of those things where at this point, it doesn't matter who it was because it's sort of gone beyond it. It'd be like asking, you know, is uh, is the Loch Ness Monster real? Like, it doesn't matter that people believe it, you know, they, they want to believe it. So um, whether it's a real person or not, it uh, doesn't matter. You know, it's been well established that it was the the owners of, of 4chan and 8chan, or sorry, not 4chan, of 8chan who took it over for the past few years. but that very initial person who claimed to have insider knowledge, it sort of, it doesn't matter anymore. As much as I would like to find out who that specific person was. Uh, but go, go ahead, sorry. Well, I think that, you know, the, the rise of that and then, you know, connected or adjacent to that, the Stop the Steal movement, two pieces that 
you guys have dove into recently, those are things that almost entirely animated online, right? I, you can see where the people who came to Washington, Washington DC on January 6th, you can trace from maybe the moment that made them inclined to vote for Trump ultimately uh, may have started online fighting through the election, you know, that, that movement that had very real world consequences. Right. And I think when we look back on that day, it's a miracle. It wasn't worse. Uh, there's a chance we look back on it and say, Hey, we really underreacted to that because the time it was for real, you know, we thought we were living in an analog world when digitally we were, we're far past that sense. I, I just, those things seem to be almost entirely created online. Now, look, you're using people's feelings and who they are, but you're allowing them connect. And you have a lot of people at the top who see this capacity uh, and go for it. So why don't we start with those two stories? Which ones do you want to, which one do you want to start with? Uh, you know, I, I am still fascinated by QAnon. I think it's all one and the same. You know, there is no, it, it's really fascinating. We've written some sort of stories about this, but there is no QAnon if there's no Donald Trump, you know, uh, conspiracy theories have always existed. Uh, they've always been um, part and parcel of life. The internet has certainly helped supercharge them, but Trump being such a conspiratorial person in his own right, you know, you always, you can remember his famous, like they tap my tower, they tap my wires at Trump Tower tweet. You know, that sort of mindset, um, presidents do in a way control the national psyche and Trump brought in a, a conspiratorial mindset that, that pervaded this country. And so without it, you know, if Hillary had won, you know, sure, someone's gonna be posting his cue and saying, you know, she's about to be arrested, uh, you know, executed and people will believe it, but it doesn't, it wouldn't break through in that way um, when you, instead of when you have someone sort of controlling the national narrative like Trump did. There is no um, stop the steal without QAnon either. You know, the person who posted as Q stopped posting around the election. I believe his last post was in December, but it was sort of very sparse after that. But that movement was born out of that. You know, the figureheads who who rose to it, you know, a lot of them would say, oh, we're not QAnon people. You could look at sort of like the White House press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany. You know, she would make in in press conferences sort of allusions to Q and, and references to it. And then, you know, when she'd get called out on, she said, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, we just really want to combat child trafficking or something like that. So they're, they're completely intertwined, you know. Um, I think when well, the day after the January 6th riot, I commissioned a piece from our freelancer, Mike Rothschild, who was one of the first people to report exclusively on QAnon. And, you know, I think the headline was this was always going to end this way. You know, this is literally what they wanted to happen. They wanted an insurrection from the get-go. They wanted powerful leaders arrested and executed. So when you have that sort of uh, mindset that has just grown and grown and grown and grown and grown, uh, it, it, the only logical conclusion is revolution. If you're whipping people into a frenzy, they're not just going to walk away one day. And then that's sort of what has happened. As you know, you know Trump is excellent at whipping people into a frenzy. Slightly beneath that was, you know, the people posting as Q and the people pushing the movement doing the same thing. So you just have this growing, growing tsunami that's that has to crash somewhere. Tell me about the actions of Ali Alexander before January 6th and his actions after them. So uh, Ali Alexander is someone we've been covering for a long time. We've done, you know, a lot of these far right figures got their start on the Internet. You know, they were 
just posting conspiracies to Twitter, you know, they were, they were gaining followers. So he's been someone who's been in our sites for a while. Um, he has, he teamed up with two, three years ago, he teamed up with Jacob Wall, who was another internet clown uh, that we covered a ton. But he has been latched on to sort of Roger Stone, who was a Trump advisor, who uh, was pushing a stop to the steel movement in 2016 uh, under the you know guise that Hillary was going to win and they needed to to protest it and you know whip people up into a fever. So he has sort of been prepping for this moment for four years. Immediately after the election happened, he was coordinating with Congress people. Um, uh, and, you know, he was organizing rallies, he was setting up websites, and, you know, he went to the night before January 6th, you know, he was uh, on January 5th uh, at a rally, he was on stage filmed saying victory or death, you know, he was central in, in whipping people up into a frenzy, he coordinated this, he had several permits for rallies on the Capitol, and, you know, there's a, there's a famous video of him uh, the day of the rally with everyone um, walking from the stage to the Capitol with him saying, you know, this is amazing. Uh, let it be known. I, you know, I do not disown this. This is mine. Uh, this is a twice actually. But, you know, it turns out he did actually want to disown this because after, you know, the riot turned violent, he had apparently attempted to uh, anonymize 122 domains, um, 60 of which were directly related to Stop the Steal. He went through um, web host Epic, uh, who was recently hacked. He used their uh, anonymized tool to try and scatter his um, ties to this, but he had he had published and owned 60 different domains that are about Stop the Steal, you know, stopthesteal.us, stopthesteal.org, uh, Stop the Steal election, 2020 Stop the Steal, uh, a number of different domains he was, um, involved in, he was intimately involved in this, and uh, he was just subpoenaed by the uh, House Committee on January 6th, so he's definitely going to be in the news more. He was intimately involved in this, and, you know, people have been demanding that his role be uh, proven out, and uh, I think in the next couple months we'll see uh, even more about him. So it's kind of concerning that one person can you know, I don't know if this it's the correct use of the term astroturfing, but maybe on a large scale it is where it's like you create all this consensus online that's coming from one brain or one group or one movement that's trying to make something look bigger than it is. And I think that's one of the exasperating parts of the internet to a layperson is like there's no much like it's hard to differentiate news value between like something holding itself to journalistic standards and someone who's like knowingly putting misinformation out there. I think it largely skews our view of how popular things are. So my first comment on that is it's kind of alarming that you can create kind of like a public consensus that simply. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, there are certainly astroturf elements to this, you know, there was a lot of astroturf elements to a lot of, um, pretty much anything Trump did. You know, there was a long time where in his replies were, were nonstop bots pushing kind of, you know, stuff about him, you know, trying to debunk, you know, a journalist would show up in his uh, mentions or a Krasenstein would show up in his mentions, you know, calling something false. And there's an <laughs> army of bots that's just, you know, pushing out the same line about this, you know, oh, you know, what about Hillary's ties to Russia or something, you know a great deal of the Trump presidency was astroturfed, you know, in terms of stop the steal, I think it was, I don't think that was as astroturfed as you might, as you're implying, you know, there was a lot of coordinated work going on. These rallies did have real person attendance, you know, a lot of times with astroturfing, you'll, you know, see people trying to organize a rally or something at like a school district or something, and then four people show up. 
you know, just by having seen 200, 200, 300 tweets about supposed like community and local leaders will be attending or, you know, you know, this is the biggest fight in, in Loudoun County, Virginia's history. You must be there. Um, this one had people that believed it, you know, and, but to get back to what we were saying about how it's all intertwined, this was, um, you know, part of being whipped into a frenzy by people who were posting about fake stuff online, you know, QAnon and, and it's ilk, you know, claiming that Democrats were out to get you and celebrities were pedophiles. There was a lot of, of false news out there that was um, designed to stir people up, you know, sort of like an astroturfing campaign. And then it was wildly, wildly, wildly successful. It's, it's sort of shocking to think about how successful this was in such a short period of time. When you read these stories about political operatives like Alexander and maybe even like some of the current Congress people that you know you alluded to earlier or people who are in high positions, what is their level of online acumen? Because when I see this, I see his name or I see someone who gets cooked up in, in something like this. And then you have Epic and then you also have Anonymous, which seem to be like highly sophisticated thing. How many of these people what do they know what they're getting themselves into? Like when you decide to host? Absolutely not. I mean, your average congressman, no, they don't know anything about the internet. Congress in a way is, is it's not very representative of the United States um, as a country, but it is representative of the people of the United States uh, as a whole. You know, there's, there's a lot of dummies and idiots and it is amazing how, you know, a, a guy like Ali Alexander has been arrested for fraud, has been involved in campaigns that have gone very publicly south. And, you know, he's been on the receiving end of a lot of negative press can just walk into a congressman's office and say, hey, I'm going to run your stolen election campaign. And people say, yes, you know, there's, you would think that Congress is, you know, uh, a highly restricted place and that they're constantly vetting the people who meet with senators and congressmen, but but they're not. Um, they're very unsophisticated. In terms of um, after the ethic hack, uh, which I don't think we've fully explained, but a website hosting company, Ethic, which sort of branded itself as um, the web server for the far right was hacked. Their site was fully compromised and just about everything they had was leaked. Uh, we received copies of that leak and were able to use it. The average right-wing operative is not too tech-savvy, and I don't mean to say that that somehow left-wing operatives are more tech-savvy, you know, um, but there is sort of a a shock at, at how inept the people on the right were with trying to protect their stuff, you know. But then again, you know, who am I to say? If I went to, uh, I don't know, GoDaddy.com and asked to use them to anonymize my data, would I trust that GoDaddy could somehow keep it safer than Epic? Probably, but that's probably speaks more to, to me and just my trust in, in mainstream institutions than anything else. So um, you know, as for uh, Anonymous that, that hacked Epic, you know, they're a collective of a number of different people and uh, they have all sorts of feuds and infighting. So it's actually hard to say Anonymous, but um, the average, I think, hacker with Anonymous would be much, much more tech savvy than the average congressional IT person. And uh, as for Epic, could, uh, you know, Anonymous hack an organization with, with a uh, high level of info security, it's less likely, but Epic prided itself on, on hosting some of the most noxious websites in, in the world. So they weren't attracting top talent. They you know, if you are a superstar coder who specializes in keeping websites safe, you'd have to be a, a true uh, zealot of, of Trump or someone even worse than him um, to, to sign up for Epic and try and try and protect their data. So, you know, when you 
champion these these um, odious causes, you know, you're not gonna and and you know, in a way, I think they're they're sort of right to do it, but you're not going to be able to attract people that also want to do that as well and, and consider their mission to keep you know the identities of probably Alexander or or the Oath Keeper's secret. So why does he, I know why he's concerned about being connected to it, but my question for you is, is it even going to matter? Because you have people out there like Chuck Grassley is, I, I saw he was at an event for Trump. It's almost like, it feels like in the Republican party, like January 6th didn't happen and there aren't any well, repercussions. Now, is that a matter of scale? Why is do you really think it'll matter or will it be like the lower level people who pay the consequences for it? Well, as the people who are at the very top of the power chain, largely skate and almost like use it as a propeller into the next election cycle. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's how it works in a lot of, um, you know, organizations that a, a, a mafia type group is not the best example here, but you know, lower level people certainly get swept up while upper level people insulate themselves and stay away from charges. You know, I believe there's been 680 arrests of people who breached the Capitol. Um, there has not been an arrest or a charge of a, a person who's organized it or um, supported it. There are some difficult um, questions to be wrangled with. It is illegal to, you know, illegally breach the, breach the Capitol and it's illegal to steal stuff from a congressman's uh, office, however funny that may be. Um, but, uh, it's not illegal to, you know, get a protest, get a permit for a protest on the Capitol. It's not illegal uh, to say that the election has been stolen. It's not illegal to say we need to do something about that. Whether that moves into incitement when you say we need to do something about that is, is a very difficult, thorny question. So someone who is on stage the night before the Jan 6 rallies is, you know, victory or death, and that which Alexander did and you know, people then did die that day. Is he is he guilty of, of incitement or was he just exercising his First Amendment rights? Uh, you know, it's it's a very thorny question. And and I don't I personally don't have the answer to that. I know a lot of people online, whenever we write about Ali Alexander, want him arrested. They tag the FBI in our tweets, which I find is a very funny thing for a person to do. But um, is that uh, something that could be prosecuted? I don't know. You know, as for the real leadership of the Republican Party, yes, it will become a, a 2020 and 2024 campaign issue. Trump, as you may have seen, gave a video message to the family of Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was um, killed at the Capitol. You know, she was part of a group storming the Capitol. You know, it wasn't like she walked in the door and was uh, meandering around the rotunda. She, you know, she was one of the first people up against a barricade screaming and hollering. Um, and, you know, now she's a, a peaceful martyr. There's been a, a, a complete attempt to rewrite it. And you can certainly see Trump if or when he does run saying, you know, they've arrested 700 people, you know, this government is out to get Republicans, these Democrats are criminals illegally prosecuting, um, you know, Republicans for their simply for, you know, free speech rights. And, you know, basically, we'll be back where we started. The other big story deals with Q alerts and ties to a member of the Florida Oath Keepers. Can you explain basically the high level of, of what's going on in that story? So that's a funny story that sort of only tangentially relates to the Epic Hat, but um, it's more of a, a media story that you'll appreciate. Uh, we were tipped off a while ago that QAlerts.app, which is a big aggregator of, of QAnon sites, uh, was uh, an oath keeper. He was part of uh, a militia, um, a right-wing militia. 
And, you know, aggregator apps like QAlerts were sort of essential in helping bringing QAnon to the masses, you know, the average speaking to our conversation about how online the average um, person is, you know, it, it, it was hard, it was difficult at any point to go to the sites that, that Q posted on and find a post. You had to be very internet savvy. You had to understand what you're looking for and you had to go find it. Um, these apps were able to just send it to you in a push alert. You know, if you're into Q, you'd search Q in Google Play and you'd see Q alerts and say, get Q alerts right to your phone. And you'd suddenly get a push notification that says, you know, storm is coming. And, and speaking to that flattening effect, you know, it, it's right there next to a, a push alert from the New York Times about some other story. Uh, so we thought that the person, the people who are building this are sort of essential to the story of Q. And we were tipped that it might be um, someone behind uh, the Florida Oath Keepers. And we were, we were given a name. We were able to look in through the source code of the app, um, find uh, ties to a company that he owned. Uh, we were able to um, compare lines in the code, look like it's sort of been copy and pasted. Eventually we were able to get a name and an address. That name was the person who owned the business that was tied to QAlerts. Uh, and um, you know, in his, we did a Google view search of his address and in his driveway was a car with a, where we go one, we go all bumper sticker, which is a prominent Q alert, uh, prominent QAnon slogan. Uh, and so, you know, we actually spent about three months working on this story. Uh, it went through several rounds of revisions with our lawyers because um, we wanted to make dead sure. And then the day, actually the night, we got um, a sign off on the story from, from our editor in chief and from our legal team at like 8 p.m. At 9 p.m., we got our hands on the first set of the Epic Data Hack. And immediately uh, that site was being hosted by Epic uh, and had the name and the address. So uh, we got a last bit of confirmation uh, right before we were able to publish. Uh, a lot of people did think it was data we obtained um, through Epic, but we did um, a ton of reporting before that, but now, but no one gives a shit about that. So I think what's concerning about this one to me is that you have this thing like Q and, and Q almost like got softened to the point where like I would, you know, I would drive around and it's like, yeah, I saw them on flagpoles and it almost became like this you know, like the dangerousness of it kind of like receded and it kind of became like, oh, you know, like this, like playing footsie with, with what's going on. And it's your kooky Ann on Facebook and things like that out here in the real world. But there's real connectivity between, you know, subscribers of that and the people who are in actual real life groups that intend and, and have no qualms about doing harm. So was that one of the threads that I think that you guys worked through the story that I thought was really interesting? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think people would call supportive QAnon virtue signaling. I think a lot of people would call it the opposite, but in a way um, it is, it's um, saying that you're part of this in group, you know, and that, and that you get it, you know, whether you believe everything that the movement um, professes doesn't uh, matter, you know, uh, no different than, you know, whether you support every sort of progressive policy on the table, you may not believe that celebrities are eating babies or that, you know, Hillary Clinton has, you know, committed several murders, but, you know, it, it signals a distrust in government, a dislike of authority. And so you're sort of on board with that. So it's not surprising that it's, it's gone mainstream. People don't even think about that. If they're flying a Q flag, they don't think they're saying, you know, I here is my sign that says, I believe Democrats are pedophiles. I think it just sort of says, here's my sign that says, you know, I'm a, a, a Trump supporting Republican. Like I said, that they're very intertwined. 
Um, and a couple, maybe about a year ago, we did a story about how that kind of language and that distrust of government became prominent in militias. And, you know, um, anti-government militias have always been sort of opposed to what they believe are nefarious forces from the federal government. They, they believe they're standing as a bulwark against tyranny. And so um, that there was the synergy uh, between the two movements was not surprising, but we were sort of shocked to see how pervasive it was, you know, very high leaders of, of militias were espousing straight up QAnon talking points, including Stuart Rhodes, who, who led the Oath Keepers. Um, he was publishing screeds about uh, corrupt child eating, uh, you know, senators. These things just became invariably intertwined. And when you have a militia group that's uh, trained in you know, military tactics, for lack of a better word, they're not actually, you know, really disciplined and drilling, but they are cosplaying and think they're they're doing it. Um, being told by sort of the figurehead uh, of their movement, you know, that the time has come for action and having been whipped into a frenzy by someone who is uh, calling, you know, the other side criminals and worthy of being hung, uh, it's no surprise that it all culminated in January 6th. And we were able also to tie the person who posted as Q alerts to that day as well. He was there, he was posting, you know, he did not post anything on January 6th, but on January 5th, uh, you know, I posted a picture of him at the, the Capitol and on January 7th of him on a plane going back to Florida. So there's just, there's, they're all just very intricately intertwined and it just sort of became the perfect storm of noxious views and, and odious people that, that culminated in the, the Capitol riot. All right, I want to take a good and a bad angle on this. The first, the good, what does it feel like to be reporting a story knowing you're going to be able to break something that has importance, that would be interest of your competitors, which we've already mentioned are as large as they come. What is, what is that rush like? And, and when you guys are really working on something, what can days look like for your team? Um, it's, it's definitely fun. It's a little different because I, I don't, uh, write much. I'm sort of, I'm sort of, I'm the editor in charge of the section. So, um, a lot of my day is spent worrying about what is wrong, what is inaccurate. You know, I'm doing a lot of fact checking, you know, I'm doing a lot of pushing for more sources, stuff like that. So while, uh, my reporters are chomping at the bit and texting me and saying, or slacking me and saying, you know, this is ready. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. My job is to just be uh, let's slow down. You know, there's always a concern that we will get beat. We always know when other people sort of have a beat on it because sources will tell us, hey, they, they, they approach me. So um, my job is throughout the process of the story being reported to be a buzzkill. Um, you know, then when it happens, it's great. Uh, I sort of made a joke that, you know, um, all my reporters have been getting tons of uh, praise and, 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 you know, follows on Twitter when they when they share these stories and uh you know they have you know they I get nothing which is fine but you know I've been I'm the one who's spending six hours on the phone with a lawyer before I publish. Um but I like that job. It's it's important. Um but it's thrilling you know uh we uh pride ourselves on being a, a small scrappy outlet and we want to be breaking these kinds of stories and we want you know sites like the New York Times and the Washington Post that tend not to site competitors to be forced to do it because the work is so good and indisputable and 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 we've been we've been doing that lately it's been it's been a real good rush and i'm, I'm really proud of the reporters i have and the work that they've done well i'm sorry you're not increasing your twitter follower count i mean if, if, if anything how many followers can i expect to gain from from this podcast being shared 
Yeah. That's I, the only I, reason I'm doing it. it. It's the only reason. Does, does it take uh, a toll out of you to be online this much to deal with this type of subject material? It seems like, you know, really challenging mentally, but also I would think phys- uh, physically and emotionally as well. Um, my actual, uh, my birthday was recently and my girlfriend got me this little, uh, fidget ring for when I was on calls with our lawyers. Cause she would watch me, uh, just pace around the house that going on. Um, it, it is very draining. Uh, I've gotten pretty good. I have taken a lot of social media apps off my phone. So when I sort of sign off for the day while I still check Slack and make sure my writers are having, you know, questions answered or help they need, I'm pretty good at, at logging off at the end of the day. And I, you know, have no problem. I read a lot. So, um, you know, I am sort of spent at the end of each day, but uh, I, I found a decent way to to recuperate. I have a dog, you know, whenever I walk her, I don't take my phone with me. So that always gives me some time away. So um, it's tough, but it's, you know, the nature of the job. So I don't, I don't have any need to complain. So I think when my wife, uh, you know, my wife still watches cable news, I've largely weaned myself out because I don't need the aggravation about something I, I can't do anything over. And I've, once you start to see kind of like the cracks in the coverage, um, you can't unsee them and it tends to be very frustrating, but um, she is, you know, she's concerned a lot about 2024. Uh, whereas I feel like I'm pretty chill about it for a very messed up reason, because like, it's my argument that with the proliferation of like deep fakes and being absolutely impossible to tell what's real and what's fake coming in a somewhat short window, I guess I'm more concerned about the larger problems than that instead of like one nation's political fight. So number one, how concerned are you long-term about what the internet's going to do for society? Speaking to cable news, you should never watch it. I, whenever I'm, you know, at a doctor's office or something and see it on, I'm, I'm amazed by uh, what it's like and that people watch it all day. I mean, it, you know, it sort of explains so much. If you ever watched four hours of cable news, uh, you're closer to the average American than, than someone who doesn't. So, um, you know, you sort of start, start to understand why the country is this way when you see the news media constantly just uh, TV news media constantly, you know, blowing everything up, freaking out, making you angry, scared, etc. Uh, in terms of the future of the internet as it relates to 2024, um, and in general, you know, I don't think deep fake, deep fake technology is going to be far enough along in 2024 to have a realistic um, impact. It's people will certainly try, and there will be, you know, uh, good journalists debunking it, and you know whether that um, makes a difference, I don't know, but you know. Uh, I don't think that is something to be concerned about. Um, in general, what the internet's going to do to the future, I don't know. You know, I uh, I know you have two children and the third coming along the way. Congratulations. Um, I do not. And if I were to have some, I'm sort of at a loss as to how I could raise them with the proliferation of screens, um, not even just the internet, but like I'm very concerned about, you know, 10 years from now having a, a five or six year old that's just hopefully I won't be giving them phone then, but you know, someone who's glued to their phone from age seven to 77, it just doesn't seem good or healthy. So that, that future frightens me um, more so than just the inherent um, being online aspect of it, of just the being glued to, to this device um, and becoming obsessed with it. It's, it's, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what the world is going to look like in 20 or 30 years, but it is, 
frightening and you know i don't i'm not a pessimistic person but um i, I think we don't even realize what kind of uh damage all this stuff is doing yeah i completely agree and, and you know on the, on the point about kids like you never really realize it until you think about it and you feel the power of not needing your phone i have made a lot of changes myself uh my screen cracked so i can only see half of it but what it's done is it's prevented me from looking at Twitter on my phone or really even like the internet on my phone. It's just a tool now to receive calls and, sh and send short text. And honestly, like it was really hard for a while, but now I'm to the point where I don't even want to get a new phone because I know it's going to, the world's going to be like at my fingertips right now. And I've made such a good mental change, but it's almost like you need that animating event that doesn't even give you a choice to make those changes. And I feel like I'm actually a pretty strong-willed person. So I don't know how others would really shift their, their priorities. Yeah. I mean, it's possible that I'm similarly, I've cut down on my phone usage as best as I could. You know, there's a chance that when you're 30 years from now, your kids will, will come to that same realization, but yeah, it was not, um, you know, I had a cell phone in, co in college. Uh, it was not a, a smartphone, obviously, but, um, it, you know, I don't know if, if the way it's been so ingrained at such a young age, whether they'll be able to, to make those calculations. You know, I live by um, a couple of schools in my neighborhood in New York, and you'll see school let out and groups of kids will just be standing in a, in a circle and they'll all be looking at their phones. And it's, you know, you can certainly sound like an old man yelling at, at the sky because of it, but it, it, it does seem frightening that there's just, um, you know, will sort of an element of human connection be obviously not lost because the internet is human connection, even if, you know, it has some, some flaws, but of, of, you know, physical intimate connection, is that, is that going to change? I'm happy. Isn't this, this is a sports podcast, right? It's everything, man. Hockey, hockey starts uh, tomorrow. No one ever wants to talk hockey with me. I'd love to get some hockey content. All right. Okay. I have football fans in New York. I have baseball fans. I have basketball fans, but there are no, no hockey fans. Um, I'm a Capitals fan. Uh, you know, it is a very disconcerting uh, start to the season. Their two best players are both injured. They're both wrong side of 30, the far wrong side of 30. I believe Ovechkin's 35 or 36 and Backstrom is 32, 33. So it might be a long slog of the season, long, terrible slog of the season, but um, I'm still excited to watch. I'm very excited for the NHL this year. And it's one reason ESPN getting the rights again. Big fan. The music's coming back. It's going to make the games have more visibility. Now, ever since moving back to Michigan, I've kind of like been following the Red Wings occasionally. I'll check by that. I mean, I'll check the standings every two or three games and they haven't really been in playoff contention. So there's been no real reason to like get behind the team. But I think with ESPN having the rights and even if they're going to put most of their inventory on ESPN plus, so maybe it'll take some work to see it. I think it'll be, way easier to follow the national storylines and who doesn't like learning a new sport. I mean, I think that we recently haven't had an explosion and maybe it's died off a little bit of formula one love in this country, right? Yeah. People got real into it. Maybe they're coming out of it and nobody's watching anymore, but it definitely has re retained some fandom. So if you're looking to try to like relaunch your sport in terms of popularity, I think now is the perfect time. So I'm really interested to see if like, hockey does get a bump 
But I can tell you personally, I'm way more excited about the season starting. Like I'm ready to jump in and, and, and learn, learn, learn a little bit more about the teams because it's largely like baseball for a lot of people, not me, but it's something that you tap into when the playoffs come. It'd be really nice to like at least have a broad idea of what's going on nationally. And that content was almost never available to the person who's tuning into Sports Center. Yeah, speaking of visibility, uh, you used to have to go, I'm on the ESPN website right now, you used to have to go to the three little dots at the sidebar and navigate all the way over to the NHL, which was done alphabetically, this was off to the side. Uh, the day ESPN got the rights to it, um, they bumped their NHL tab up to the top of their um, header bar, I forget what it's called. So you've got NFL, NBA, MLB, NHL now, where it used to be uh, NFL, NBA, NBA uh, MLB, college football and soccer. So, you know, ESPN was actively hiding it. Um, and as soon as they got the rights, uh, they brought it back. Um, but it is, you know, it, it's a very fun, compelling sport, you know, uh, for the old fogies. Uh, the games are, are timed and last two hours. There's none of the um, delays at the end of a, a typical NBA game. Uh, there's none of concern of a, a, base, a basketball game. It'll go long. Uh, there's not the uh, commercial, constant commercial interludes like in uh, – NFL game, you know, in, in a hockey game, you can go uh, very normally you go three, four minutes without a whistle. You can go up to 10, you know, it is a really uh, a good sport to watch and one that demands your attention too. So um, I hope it becomes popular. And, you know, there are tons of interesting storylines, you know, there's all sorts of drama. It's a very, for as, you know, anodyne as the players try to be, it's, it's a very dramatic um, sport. You know, there's always, there's constant, you know, grudges, retaliation. Uh, it's, you know, and if, if uh, the NHL or if ESPN is willing to, you know, hype up and lean into that drama, you know, it, it would make, it will make for good TV. You know, if you think about just the, the Caps Rangers feud at the end of last season, like, you know, that was the top story on ESPN when they didn't have the right. So, um, you know, with, with what do they call themselves, the worldwide leader uh, covering it now, you know, hopefully hockey will be front and center. All right. Do you want to call your shot and make some predictions? Give me the, give me the, give me the, Conference finalists in each, in each and, and give me a Stanley Cup winner and we'll get you out of here on that. Okay. Do uh, I think, you know, I'm going to go surprise with the Florida Panthers versus, you know, they're not doing the reseeding like they did. So I got to think about this for a second. So I think they're doing this sort of funky conference thing. So only yeah. one can come out of there, but. All right, just give, me, know, I'll a, take just the, give me a final. Just give me a final. I'll take, no, 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 no. I got this. I'll take Florida Panthers. I'll put the caps in there, even though it's not going to happen. Uh, and then Colorado Avalanche. And you know what? Fine. It's time for Edmonton to put it together. Um, we'll do Edmonton instead of Toronto out of, or sorry, <laughs> there's no more Cam division. Um, we'll go Florida, Washington, Colorado, Edmonton. And Colorado is going to win it all. Over? Fuck it over DC. I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it. Uh, I, give me, give me the lightning again. Uh, until I, I, you know, I, I, until I hear like differently. Them, it's going to be a, it's going to be a lightning for me. It is. This, this was, this was a round of bold picks. So if they're wrong, uh, it's cause I was trying to be too bold. All right. I'm going to get you out of here. I appreciate All it. All right. Man. Yeah.